We're going to go ahead and get started. This is our second to last class. We've got one more class next week. And then we'll have completed Mere Christianity. We'll be all the way through. Um, we're talking about the, the second third of book four today. So chapters five through eight, the obstinate toy soldiers, two notes. Let's pretend, and is Christianity hard or easy? Um, let's kind of start our class the way that we normally do, by going around and saying our names. Sunny, can I start with you, since you're right up front? Hi, I'm Sunny. Sunny. John. John. Tom. Tom. Zan. 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 Bogar. Bogar. Karen. Karen. Kate. Kate. Valerie. Valerie. Hi, Valerie. Kathy. Kathy. And Bela, right up front. Um, okay. So, and I'll do um, the thing that I normally do, where I just ask you to commit to engaging respectfully, understand that people will have different opinions, respect them, share your opinions and ideas, allow others to share their opinions and ideas, respect the pause. Do we agree? Yes. Okay, thanks. Um, okay, so do we all have a half sheet at this point? Did everyone get one? Great. Okay, uh, so statement one, this is a dense one. Our natural life, bios, is focused on survival and tends to be self-centered. Our natural biological life wants to survive, okay? Our spiritual life, zoe, is concerned with morality and the divine. Do you need a pen? Yeah. The two are usually in opposition to each other. So our natural life and our spiritual life tend to be, tend to function in opposition. Bless you. But is that the spiritual life of God? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So our sense, and probably the easiest way to think of Zoe is our sense of morality. Okay. So what is right often is the opposite of what our biological life wants us to do. Okay? Uh, statement two. The process of being turned from a creation of God into a child of God would not be difficult or painful if the human race had not turned away from God centuries ago. <coughs> so remember last week we talked about how a creation, a sculptor creates something of a different substance than himself. He begets a child that is the same substance of himself. So C.S. Lewis was talking about how we are creations of God, different substance of him, that he slowly makes us into begotten children by putting his own nature into us. And it's a difficult and painful process, but maybe it wouldn't have been if we hadn't rebelled in the Garden of Eden. Okay, statement three. Becoming a Christian does not mean you join a homogenous group and must become likewise homogenous. It means you become more fully unique, more brilliantly distinct as the person he created you to be. Welcome, Pauline. Do we have, oh, that's okay. Um, are there any more half sheets available? I wasn't going to make copies today. I think it's posted. Good job. Okay. Yeah, so uh, becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you just become one of the same. It actually means you become more brilliantly unique. That's who God intended you to be. Okay, statement four. Fake it till you make it is a concept that actually works. We grow into our own pretense. Do you agree or disagree? Okay, statement five, the Bible commands us to imitate Christ. Okay, statement six, the way someone reacts when they're caught off guard is an indication of their true character. <coughs> Whether or not we want to admit it. Okay, uh, statement seven. 
This is, I think, a really interesting one. It is, it is nearly impossible to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life and at the same time be good. Statement eight, the church exists to make people into little Christs. Is that the purpose of the church, to make people into little Christs? Okay, if you are done, I will take your sheets and we will shuffle them. For Thank you so much. Okay, um, so this was where we left off last week. Uh, we were talking about how are we to be united with God. Okay, C.S. Lewis introduced this concept of the bios life, this natural, survival-focused, fleshly life versus the spiritual life, Zoe. And he says when we take in Christ, it's, it, his, his spiritual life, this Zoe, goes into us, and it makes us more alive. And he said, that's the offer of Christianity. If we let God have his way, we will come to share in the life of Christ. And if, and if we do, then we shall be sharing the life which was begotten, not made, which has always existed and will always exist. And he, he really emphasizes this. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. That's what Christian means, in fact. That's the whole purpose of becoming a Christian. It's nothing less. Okay, that's where we left off. So now, he gets into this chapter called The Obstinate Toy Soldiers. Any Toy Story 4 fans in this room? Any of you seen Toy Story 4? Seen it. Seen it. Okay. No, most of you know. Okay. It's, you're missing out. It's a great movie. Karen, do you remember who this character is? Yes. Yeah, it's Forky. It's Forky. Very good. It's Forky. Yeah. So in, how many of you have never seen a Toy Story? Okay, Tom. Okay, so, so the hero of Toy Story, it's really wonderful cinema. It's wonderful childhood cinema. And, um, and if Jeff was a cartoon, he would be Woody. Um, so uh, the main, the, the arc of the Toy Story uh, series is that uh, when Andy the boy leaves, his toys come alive. And they have kind of this little society, and they go on missions to rescue lost toys. And Woody, played by Tom Hanks, is a cowboy doll. He's their leader. His best friend is Buzz Lightyear, who's a, who's a space astronaut toy. Um, but by the time we get to Toy Story 4, Andy the kid has grown up. He's gone off to college, which is very emotional, the end of Toy Story 3. And now they have found a new home with this little girl, Bonnie. And Bonnie is preparing to go to kindergarten for the first time. And unlike with Andy's toys, when Woody was Andy's toy, Woody was the top dog. He was the favorite toy. He's not really the favorite toy anymore, but he still really feels responsible for taking care of all the other toys. When Bonnie goes off to, to kindergarten, he jumps into her backpack to comfort her so that he can keep an eye on her. And when she gets to kindergarten, she's feeling really shy and scared, and she makes this ugly thing out of, out of stuff she finds on the table. There's popsicle sticks on the table. She twists together a pipe cleaner and she calls it uh, Forky. And, and, and instantly, and if you've been around small children, you know how this goes, he becomes the most important toy in the world to her. Like, and like suddenly, like, you know, it's like the Happy Meal toy that suddenly your kid can't live without, okay? So she cannot, she cannot live without him. Well, what's super interesting about Toy Story 4, you can kind of go down a rabbit hole here, he believes he's trash. Okay? She makes him out of trash, he comes alive, because that's what happens in the Toy Story world, and he believes he's trash, so he can, he's constantly trying to throw himself away. He sees the trash can, and he's like, trash, and he runs toward it, and he hops in the trash can, and Woody has to keep going and rescuing him and pulling him out and explaining to him, you are precious to this little girl now, you have to keep on living, you have to, you have to be her toy. And so he's constantly trying to remind him, you have a different identity now. You're not trash anymore, okay? Well, this is a pretty apt analogy 
for, for C.S. Lewis and how he begins this story, The Obstinate Toy Soldiers. Okay, he says, he says, so imagine that we've got all of these little tin soldiers. Okay, they're just made out of tin. They're just these dinky little toy soldiers. Welcome, Susie, Dan, Peter. Um, and, and here you've got this maker, okay, this creator who wants to give them real life. Okay? He wants to make he wants to turn Pinocchio from a wooden doll into a real boy, or he wants to turn trash into something that is precious and beloved. Okay? The problem is we've got two kinds of life operating inside of us. Okay? We've got our bios life, you can think of that as the tin self or even the trash self that really wants to remain as you are. Okay? He says the natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired, to take advantage of other lives, to exploit the whole universe, and especially it wants to be left to itself, to keep well away from anything better or stronger or higher than it, anything that might make it feel small. It's afraid of the light and air of the spiritual world, just as people who have been brought up to be dirty are afraid of a bath. Okay? And in a sense, it's quite right. It knows that if the spiritual life gets hold of it, all its self-centeredness and self-will are going to be killed. And it is ready to fight tooth and nail to avoid that. Okay? It is much simpler to remain trash and to throw yourself in a trash can and to say this is all I was meant for than to suddenly be responsible for, for being this child's favorite toy. Okay? It is a more complex thing for us to say, I am bound to worship this God. My will is not my own. That is more complex and more scary and far more meaningful than just saying, I've got this life. I can do whatever what I want to do. I can throw myself away if I want. It's my call. Okay? So you can, there's, a, there's a real temptation, right, to do what kind of this, what this Forky character does and just say, I want a simpler life. I don't want to be responsible for, for living up to this new, better identity, okay? It's too much for me. And so, so that's what our natural life does, okay? The spiritual life is opposed to the natural life, and it wants to draw us towards morality and God, okay? It's primed to go towards the divine, and so he says, um, you know, imagine that, that you're a tin soldier and oh, he, I, wanna, I want to become, I want to stay tin. I don't want to let my natural self die. I want to hang on to this selfishness, okay? Now, what is God going to do if his creation says, I don't want to be real? And we see this in the Toy Story movie. What happens after he goes and throws himself in the trash can? What happens? I just told you. It's not a trick question. Woody, the hero, runs in his floppy way to the trash can. He goes in the trash and he pulls Forky out. And he reminds him of his new identity. Okay? So that is what God did. Okay? If we refuse to progress, then God was willing to regress. Okay? And C.S. Lewis says, the eternal being who knows everything, who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that, a baby. And before that, a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. Okay? If, some, if a genie appeared and was like, Pauline, what are your three wishes? We can be pretty confident that Pauline would be like, you know what, I really want to minister to the slugs. I just, I feel like I need to become a slug so that I can save all the slugs of God's creation. That's probably not what her wish would be, okay? But that is what Christ did for us, okay? Um, so, C.S. Lewis says, um, in one instance, humanity had, so to speak, arrived. He, he became what all men were intended to be, okay? One man in whom the created life, derived from his mother, that's the natural life, allowed itself to be completely and perfectly turned into the begotten life. Okay? And because the whole difficulty for us is that the natural life has to be killed, right? That we have to let Christ take over all those fleshly bits of ourselves because we have to let him kill those things. Jesus chose an earthly career 
which involved the killing of his human nature at every turn, the, the killing of his human desires. He, he, he entered into poverty, uh, misunderstanding from his own family, betrayal by one of his intimate friends, being jeered at and manhandled by the police, and execution by torture. Okay, that's what he did. That's how he allowed this natural fleshly self, which is self-centered, which wants to take advantage of other people for your own good. He allowed all of that to be beaten and destroyed. Okay? And then, after being thus killed, killed every day, in a sense, the human creature in him, because it was united to the divine son, came to life again. One tin soldier, real tin, just like the rest, had come fully and splendidly arrive, alive. Okay? So, um, now... He says, um, okay, uh, so basically, he's, he's done it for us, okay? This, the precedent that this one tin soldier who became fully alive, has sent, that has cleared the way for all of us, okay? He has shown all of us how we can, how we can turn from a creation into a, into, a, into a child of God, okay? The business of being turned from a created thing into a begotten thing, passing over from the temporary biological life, into timeless spiritual life has been done for us. He has saved all of humanity in that sense, okay? Humanity is saved in principle. We individuals must appropriate, appropriate that salvation. We take hold of it. We let it affect us. We agree to be changed, okay? Can um, you explain what is a begotten, what is begotten mean? Begotten, thank you. That's like a child being born, okay? So the scripture says that Jesus was God's only begotten son. He was the only, the only child that, that was of the same substance of God in the same way that a child, your son, is human like you. But if you were to create a little clay person, that would be of a different substance than you. So that is a creation versus a begotten child. Okay? We are God's creation. We are of a different substance than God. Okay? But when Christ's life comes into us, we become, we, our eternal nature, our spiritual nature is enlivened and we come alive in the same way that like a little tin soldier becomes fully alive as like, as a, as a human. Okay? That's kind of the analogy that C.S. Lewis rolls with. Okay? Um, and, and remember, and last week we talked about the good infection. Okay, if you want to, if you want to get warm from a fire, you have to get close to it. And so he says, get close to Christ. That's how the Christ life works in you and changes you. Okay. Two notes. We're basically going to skip over. Okay. He just brings up two like little questions. Okay. He says the first question somebody wrote and asked him: If God wanted children instead of toy soldiers. Why didn't he just beget many children in the first place rather than making toy soldiers and making it a really hard process? And C.S. Lewis says, well, you can think of that two different ways. Number one, um, he kind of did make us children in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, and then we sinned. And then we were the ones that really denied ourselves this eternal life. And so now it is a complicated process. Okay. Well, it's not, it's not all we do is accept Jesus as Christ's life, but then it's, it's, a, it's a long journey towards sanctification towards towards holiness okay um but he says but number two actually that's a tangent i don't really want to get into it ask me what number two is if you're really intrigued okay mm -hmm. yes Pauline. he already had the angels that's true they were perfect they worshipped him they weren't perfect though well not perfect but they were on a higher plane that's true he wanted I mean, I think of it. I think of it as 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 making the choice to become a parent. Okay, when Jeff and I decided we wanted to have kids, we knew we would probably be creating people that would would drive us crazy and make life a lot harder. That we would, you know, why would people do this, right? Why sign up for sleepless nights? Why sign up for 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 the woman for nine months of real discomfort, okay, and 18 years after that of challenge, um, I mean, it doesn't okay? so you more experienced parents know, right, okay, why does, why do any of us do that, it's because there is a loving relationship, and gosh, wouldn't it be amazing to have something more to love, right, 
There is, it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, it's this crazy decision that we do because, um, and it's usually a decision that comes out of, out of love. Even if, even if it's not in the context of a marriage, right? The act of sex is still, it's, it's an act in that moment of, of, of passionate connection. And out of that comes something more, okay? I think that that's, I mean, that's how I understand God's desire to have, to create people, um, even knowing that we would sin, even knowing that we would reject him. He thought to himself, it's worth it. It's going to be worth it. I know it's going to be hard, but, but I love them. Yeah, Valerie. I think, too, also, at least what I think is that he let us have that choice because love is choosing yeah. rather than being the, the soldier who has no choice to mm-hmm. love or not love. Yeah. Then it's really strong that this love is in us. And he, he brings that up in this, in this chapter. He says... Um, he says he gave us the free will to do that. Yeah. And last week we got into this this idea of time and beyond time. If if free will and predestination is a subject of a special curiosity for you, I would go back and read that time and beyond time chapter because it gets into these to this idea of free will, God's sovereignty kind of all all mixed together, okay? Um, the second point that he makes is that, hey, don't, don't mistake, when I say that, that humanity as a whole organism has been saved, don't think that I'm implying that Christianity is like one big mass, okay? And that once you become a Christian, you have to be a cookie cutter like anything else. I kind of thought that when I became a pastor's wife. When Jeff told me, hey, by the way, I want to become a pastor, I was like, seriously? <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't agree to that when I married you. I thought we were going to be teachers together for the rest of our lives. I thought being a pastor's wife meant I had to morph into Beth Moore or something. Okay? <laughs> and, um, and what I realized is that God calls me to be myself. He has given me the gifts that he's given me. He has given me the relationship with Jeff that I've given it is unique to us in the same way that all of us are called to grow into our own selves as he created us to be. But what's amazing is that God knows exactly what you are gifted at. And so as you give yourself more to him, he transforms you more and more into this perfect fruition of what you were always meant to be. Okay? And so he compared, in the Bible, he says, we're compared to organs, okay? Now, this is a little bit nasty. This is one of the less nasty anatomical pictures I could find. You're welcome, okay? Um, But he says, the Bible compares us to to organs, all having this essential function in the body, all needing to work together, but all being very, very distinct and doing very different things, okay? I love that point, that that Christians, as we give ourselves more to God, we become more fully who, who we were meant to be, Okay? Chapter 7, welcome, thank you. Yeah, it's going on. Oh, no, no, we're, we're short. I think so, because some people came in late. But um, the people who came in late, how do you feel about just like moving your bodies according to your own opinions? That's fine. Okay, so don't worry about it. Okay. okay. Enjoy your class. Okay, chapter 7, um, he starts off talking about Beauty and the Beast. Okay? Um, he says, um, remember the story of Beauty and the Beast. The girl you remember had to marry a monster for some reason, and she did. She kissed it as if it were a man, and then, much to her relief, it really turned into a man, and all went well. Okay? Um, happily ever after, right? Um, and he gives another, he's like, the other story that you all know, which I've never heard of, is about someone who had to wear a mask. A mask which made him look much nicer than he really was. He had to wear it for years. And when he took it off, he found his own face had grown to fit it. He was now really beautiful. Has anyone heard of that story? I don't think so. No. Okay. The idea that he's putting forth here is that we can grow into a pretense of beauty. Okay. Now, in the Bible, it tells us that we are meant to imitate Christ. Okay. He says, when you, when you try to pretend that you are like Christ, okay, um, then you will really actually become more like him. He says, I want us to move from all the ideas of theology into the practical, okay? And the first practical step, and this is appropriate coming from the author of Narnia, he says the first thing we're going to do is we're going to pretend, okay? We are going to use our imaginations and pretend. He says, now how are you going to pretend? Well, if you've read this far, maybe you'll, maybe you'll try to pray. And if you're not used to praying, then you will pretend that you are the kind of person who does sometimes say prayers. 
And if you don't know how to do that, then maybe you will go ahead and give the Lord's Prayer a try. The Lord's Prayer is getting a lot of attention today. FYI, in case you haven't noticed today. Okay, so how does the Lord's Prayer begin? Okay, and he, re- he even talks about kids playing dress up, so this is a legitimate that I found for you. Okay, um, so the first line of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, what does that imply? It implies relationship. What kind of relationship? Very personal relationship. relationship. Be even more specific. Father and child. Father and child. Daddy. Okay. What did you say? Daddy. Daddy. Right. Abba. Abba is is basically daddy. I mean that that was that is that is what it means. Okay. Now he says, uh, I love this. I'm going to read this. Okay. Now what is the good of? uh, Oh no. He says, this is incredible cheek. Um, okay, okay, yeah. Uh, the, so, to put it bluntly, you're, you're dressing up as Christ when you say, our Father. Okay, you're calling yourself a child of Christ. If you like, you're pretending. But, of course, the moment you realize what the words mean, you realize you're not a child of God. You're not a being like Jesus, whose will and interests are one with those of the Father. You are a bundle of self-centered fears, hopes, greeds, jealousies, and self-conceit all doomed to death. Okay, that's what we really are. So that, in a way, this dressing up as Christ is a piece of outrageous cheek, okay? Um, But the odd thing is, he's ordered us to do it, okay? Now, why why would we do that, okay? Now, we heard about one bad kind of pretense today, right? Which is the pretense of hypocrisy. And let us acknowledge what a massive problem Christians have with hypocrisy, Okay? I think I have talked to more people who have said who have sworn off Christianity because they knew some Christian hypocrite. Okay, some people who pretended to be externally pious, who actually was very, very rotten on the inside. And that's why Margaret's sermon is so true that God cares so much about who we are in secret, because that is who we really are. Okay? Um, so, let us not confuse the, the bad kind of pretense. And he says, but there's also a good kind of pretense. Okay, let me tell a story to illustrate this. I may have already shared this with this class, so forgive me if I have. There was one morning when my girls were still pretty little, when I was running late, and I was stressed out, and they were frustrating me. They wouldn't put on their shoes. We were late. And so by the time we got to church in the parking lot, I was like... Right there, right? Like like the words and the yelling were like bubbling, bubbling, bubbling right there, okay? And then I see this homeless man, and he says, can you please tell me what time the service starts? And I was like, well, we're a little late. But instantly, right, there was accountability, okay? That I was not, I suddenly checked myself, okay? I'm not feeling like a great mom right now, but I'm going to act like I love my children because I don't want to embarrass myself in front of this in front of this homeless man, okay? And so he asked me where the service is, and so I'm like, okay, I'll, I will show you. And at that moment, I think I was holding Gloria, she was still a baby, Ramona flops down onto the parking lot, because I think she wanted to inspect the gum on the ground, or something <laughs> like, and, but I refrained from yelling, which was what I really wanted to do, because this man was here, there was accountability, so I'm pretending to be a nicer mother than I actually am, and I, and I haul her up, and so now I'm carrying both of them, and he starts exclaiming, how amazing. You are so strong. Look at what you're willing to do for your children. You are sacrificing for your children. And I think to myself, oh, I so don't deserve this. But, um, but I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Um, pretending to be something that I'm not in the moment, right? We get into church. And so I'm looking for the, the head that pops over all the others because that's how I'm going to find Jeff. This was before we had kind of a one main sitting spot that we usually said. So I find Jeff. And, and this man says, Pastor Jeff. He's come to the rescue mission. You took me right to a friend. God, God is so good. God connected me with you. And you took me right to a friend on my first Sunday back at church. And I just thought, oh my gosh, how like God to take my lateness and my impatience and my anger with my children and transform all of that into this gift to this man who needed to be taken to a friend on his first day back to church, right? So in that moment, I was faking it. I was pretending to be a good Christian mother who I was not feeling at all in the moment. And God used that 
to transform me into something that really actually was more like Christ. He humbled me. I recognized, oh, my need for God. He, called, he, he caused me to awaken more deeply to my sin. And he, caused, he awakened in me my compassion, not only for this man, but also my children, who were being children, right? They weren't there to thwart me. They were just being children, okay? And so, so C.S. Lewis says, listen, when we act, when we pretend that we are like Christ, he wakes us up and he transforms us even more into being like Christ, okay? Very often, the only way to get equality in reality is to start behaving as if you had it already, okay? And he says, now this is really interesting because it's not just like following the rules, okay? He says it's more like painting a portrait. When you're studying someone, it's not like you give them two eyes, a nose, and a mouth, right? That would be like a list of rules. Like, no, you're trying to get the nature of, of the image, okay? So he says, when you try to really actually pretend to be more like Christ, which is kind of what I experienced in that moment, um, you realize two things. Number one, you realize what of your thoughts is not actually Christ-like, okay? You come to grips with your own sin pretty darn fast, okay? When you're just like, wow, um, I am so angry right now, and that is not like how Christ is, okay? Um, wow, I feel impatient with this man for stopping me when I really just want to get to church on time rather than showing, pausing and showing him compassion as I know Christ would, okay? So you come to grips with what of your thoughts is not Christ-like. And number two, um, sometimes God brings something to mind that you know you ought to do, okay? In, the, in Scripture it says, uh, if you go to the altar and you're about to give your gift and then you realize that somebody has a problem with you, you're engaged in a fight with someone, don't bring me your gift yet, Okay? Because I want your obedience more than I want your money. Okay, go make peace with that person first. Okay, so he says, I don't know if you guys sometimes experience this, but sometimes when I pray, um, I will think of something that wasn't there before, and it'll be like a person or something that I should do. Um, and I think that that's, that's the Holy Spirit working in us, right? To bring to our attention something that we ought to do. Okay, so, so he says, you actually start to change. He says, this is supernatural. Christ himself is beside you. The Holy Spirit is in you, helping your pretense become more of a reality, bringing his Zoe, his spiritual life, into you. Okay? And it's different than just the workings of your own conscience, which is like what is right and what is wrong. I'm supposed to make my bed. I'm supposed to, you know, give my tithe when they pass the plate in Sunday. He's like, it's, it goes beyond that. Okay? It's much more finely tuned so that you recognize that you are being called into becoming a certain type of person, not just doing certain things. Okay? Um, now, he says, um, now God can work a lot of different ways. Okay? Um, uh, God can work. Um, where is it? Yeah, okay. Um, so God can work. Uh, through not just through our religious life, he works through nature. He works through our bodies. God works through books. Uh, he works through other people. Uh, and sometimes he even works through experiences which seem at the time anti-Christian. Okay? Um, I used to teach high school seniors. Some of them had gone to this Christian private school since they were kindergartners. A lot of the time, by the time they got to be seniors in high school, they were so bitter and jaded about Christianity, in large part because they'd seen a whole lot of Christian hypocrites in their classmates, okay, and they had decided that this is such, this is so fake, this is so stupid, okay, <laughs> for a lot of those kids, the healthiest thing I could see them do senior year was to say, I'm going to, I'm going to reject this for a while, I'm going to be honest about where I actually am, I'm going to stop faking it, I'm sick of faking it. I'm going to just be honest about where my faith actually is and see how God wants to engage with me right there. It seems like a step away, but actually it was the first honest reckoning they had with their own spirituality. And I knew that if their faith was ever going to become their own, especially in kind of this incubated life that they'd experienced, they had to distinguish themselves from the faith of their parents if they were to ever claim it for themselves. Okay? So sometimes God can use even these experiences which seem anti-Christian to draw us to him. And he says, now, that doesn't mean 
even if you've got this wonderful Christian body of people who help you, don't mistake those people for the real giver, okay? Um, if we trust in other people, uh, it's like building your house on the sand, okay? Uh, it's going to let you down. Don't ever, ever rely on human beings. They're not God. They can't, they can't be your everything, okay? Um, he ends this chapter by saying what God wants, to, he wants to turn you into a new little Christ, a being which in its own small way has the same kind of life as God. Okay, this is Zoe life. Um, uh, oh, sorry, that's, we already talked about that. Um, did we? Hang on. Um, okay, oh yeah, okay, so when we, um, these are, these are, he says, I kind of already talked about this one. Um, but when we when we try to when we really try to take on this this when we really pretend to be a little Christ, um, we begin to notice our sin. Not necessarily what we do, but what we are. Okay. Oh, this is okay. I'm sorry. Um, let me read this part because this he he has a nice personal reflection here. When I come to my evening prayers and try to reckon up the sins of the day, nine times out of ten, the most obvious one is some sin against charity. I've soaked or snapped or sneered or snubbed or stormed. And the excuse that immediately springs to my mind is the provocation was so sudden and unexpected. I was caught off my guard. Okay, I'm, well, of course I acted impatiently. I was caught off my guard. Okay, um, I didn't have time to collect myself. Uh, and he says, but surely what a man does when he's taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of a man he really is. Right? Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on his disguise is the truth. Okay, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only reveals what an ill-tempered man I am. Okay? Um, and he says, uh, secondly, um, we realize that, that uh, if what we are matters even more than what we do, okay, then it follows that the change which I most need to undergo is a change that my own direct voluntary efforts can't bring about. Okay? I can't be as good as I know I ought to be, okay? He says, I can't, by direct moral effort, give myself new motives, right? Sometimes we can change our behavior, but man, those motives, how do we change our motives, okay? He says, the only thing that can do that is God, okay? And that's the second thing that you realize. I've been talking as if it were we who do everything. In reality, of course, it's God who does everything, okay? And I, I love that, that Jesus actually engages in this, in this act of pretending with us, okay? Because there are multiple instances all throughout the Bible where God or Jesus calls someone by their true name far before they have become that thing, okay? When he greets Gideon, sniveling, hiding, scared, bitter Gideon in the Old Testament, he greets Gideon as mighty warrior. Greetings to you, mighty warrior. Okay? He calls Peter before his betrayal, before his before telling. This is right before he ends up saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. When Peter's like, you can't go to the cross. Okay? And then he's like, get behind me, Satan. Okay? Before any of that happens, he looks at Peter and he calls him the rock. You are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. Now, does Peter grow into the rock of the early church? You bet he does. Acts is this amazing fruition of Peter coming into being as the rock of the early church and all the boldness that caused him to say stupid things to Jesus and to pull out a sword and try to swipe somebody's ear off in the, in the garden. All of that boldness, that raw material, Christ transforms into this heroic, bold man who is preaching through the streets of the early church. And he's causing all these people to wake up to their sin and to turn towards Jesus. It's amazing. Okay? But that's not how he started off. Jesus calls him by his true name. He says, I want you to pretend, Peter. I want you to live into the identity that I give you. You are the rock. I know it doesn't feel like you are right now, but you are. And I'm going to get you there. The more I put my life into you, the more you will truly become who you are meant to be. Okay? Um, and then he ends this chapter. He's like, listen, this is the whole point. This is the whole point. This is, this is the point of all of humanity, okay? Um, then we get into uh, our last chapter, is Christianity hard or easy? And he says, well, it's both, okay? 
So he says, there's, there's, once again, there's the two parts of us. We've got our natural self, okay? That person wants a comfortable life. And then we've got the moral self, the one that recognizes that there are good things that we should do, like picking up your dog's poop, right? That none of us want to do, okay? No natural person wants to, wants to do something like this. Okay, the example he gives is paying your taxes. We do these things and we're like, man, this sucks. I don't want to do this, right? If we were all just living as hedonists, none of us would pick up our dog's poop. None of us would pay our taxes, okay? So these two selves are kind of warring with each other, okay? And he says trying to please both selves is basically impossible. He says we're trying to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time be good. We want to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and we're hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. Okay? He says it doesn't work. You can't do those two things. It's impossible. Okay? So he says in that way, Christianity is harder and easier because it makes it simple. It's just, just give God everything. Let go, of, let go of your own desires. Give him everything. Okay? Christ says, give me all. And by the way, I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. When we're baptized, we say we are, what's, what's the line? We're like dying to our old self and raised into new life. Okay? Um, I think of this as, as imagine that we... Um, we want to have a dinner party, okay? We've got all of our desires laid out like dishes on the table, okay? When I was in my early 20s, God, I would like a husband. I would like some children, preferably cute, smart children, okay, that are healthy. Um, I would like a good job, like, right? And I lay out my banquet, and then I send an invitation to God. Can you come and bless this? Bring a side dish if you want, okay? And Jesus knocks at my door, and, and he says, thank you so much for the invitation. Actually, I'm going to host you. I want you to come to my house. Okay? I don't want to be a side dish. I don't want to be a guest. I want to take you to my feast. Okay? Now, when I prayed those prayers as a young 20-something, I got so mad at God one time because I was still single. And I was like, God, what is the deal? Am I really so much more spiritually immature than all my friends who have gotten married by now? Why haven't you let this blessing happen for me? I really got mad at him. And that night, when I went to sleep, God didn't give me an answer. He didn't just, he didn't just drop a husband in my life. He said, am I enough for you, Greta? And that question went so much deeper than my desire for a husband because it got at the root of how I most needed Jesus. I had so much fear. I wanted people. I wanted to build my house on the sand. I wanted people to, be, to give me guarantees that they could make my life wonderful. I wanted a perfect husband who would give me a perfect life. And God said, am I enough for you? I want to be everything to you, Greta. I don't want to be a side dish. I want to, I want to be the host. I want you to come to my house. Okay? That's what Christ wants for us. He says, listen... You're growing thistles. I want to plant wheat. A thistle's never going to be able to grow wheat. I've got to uproot it entirely. I've got to plant a new field. Okay? You can't hold on to your natural self and still produce the kind of fruit that I'm asking you to. He says, hand over the whole natural self, all the desires, even the ones you think are innocent. My desire to be married was, was an innocent desire, but it, but it wasn't what God was calling me into ultimately, okay? Give me all the desires, even the ones you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked. Give me the whole outfit. I will give you a new self. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours, okay? This is why we get this seeming contradiction. Jesus says, take up your cross, which sounds like torture. He also says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, okay? Come to me you're heavy hearted. I'm going to give you new life. I've come to give you abundant life. That's what I want for you. But it means you have to let your old self die. You have to give me everything. Okay? Yes, it's hard, but it's actually easier than what we're trying to do by pleasing both selves. Okay? Now, he says, here's the practical challenge of your Christian life. Okay? When you wake up, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. I gotta do this, I gotta do this. Oh, I gotta, I gotta feed myself, I gotta take care of my kid, I gotta get dressed. 
Okay, gotta do all these things. They're rushing at you like wild animals. So the first job each morning is to shove them all back, okay? And to listen to that other voice, let that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. It's like coming in out of the wind. Okay, that's why, that's why this morning time with God is so important. It's like coming in out of the wind from this, from this exhausting natural self and listening to his self. And he says, at first, you're going to get moments of this. You're going to get moments where you find yourself partaking in that Christ life. But it's going to get bigger, and it's going to get longer, and it's going to change who you are, okay? He says, the sort of compromise we would prefer is basically impossible, okay? He says, yeah, it's hard for an egg to turn into a bird, but it would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg, right? He says, you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary, decent egg. I'm a good person. Why do I have to change? I'm fine. I'm decent. I'm ordinary. He says, mm-mm. You got to hatch or you go bad, okay. which is a very lighthearted way of speaking about this cosmic consequences for where we put our faith in Jesus, right? Okay, that's our section for today. The church exists, by the way, he says, um, to draw us into Christ, to make us little Christ. It's the only thing we were made for. Now, this is very um, convicting, I think, and I think it's worth... As a, as a church body thinking about, is this what we're doing? The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, all the clergy, all the missions, the sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. If, the, if God's people are not actively becoming more like Christ and being Christ as they go out into the world, the church is failing to do its job. Okay. Those are our four chapters for today. So we're going to now redistribute. Okay, please don't take one of the surveys. If you didn't do one, you're just going to be flying live. Um, and we're going to go back to statement one. Okay, this is an important concept, so let's, let's spend some time on this one. Statement one, our natural life, self-centered, our spiritual life, concerned with morality and the divine, and the two usually function in opposition. Kind of a complicated idea, but it's really important for this section of C.S. Lewis's book. Where does your sheet tell you you should go? Or where does your... So this is agree over here by the stained glass, and this is disagree over here. Okay. Most of us agree. Some people disagree which is helpful, so we can have a conversation about this idea. Why would someone agree or disagree with this statement? One helpful word is tens, another one is usually. I mean, I can see why somebody might disagree because if those words weren't there, but I think if yeah. we are tending to those things, I think it's true. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Those are helpful. <laughs> Make it less absolute. And I think you can focus on surviving, but still be concerned with the other and do good. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not really it's mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. you, could, you could try to attend to both. I just watched the movie Aladdin with our girls, and um, you know how they show that Aladdin is really a good guy? They show him that he's... he's, he's He's good looking, he's a thief, he's agile, right? We see all those things when he's stealing stuff in the marketplace. But you know he's a good guy because after he's gone through all this effort to steal a roll of bread, he sees hungry kids and he gives it to them. Okay. It's a moment where his natural self, his desire to survive, um, is challenged with this, uh, with this opposing nature, the, the nature to be good. And the fact that Aladdin gives the kids his role shows, oh, he's a good guy. He's, he's immoral. Even though he's a thief, he's a moral guy. 
So often we do this self-centered self that wants things for itself is challenged by what is good. Why would someone, yeah, Sam? Yes, we pick up before and we're born again and after, and all of a sudden my desires to be in a society page of a newspaper. What is your picture? Yeah. Your whole, your value system just totally changes. And that's the beauty, right? That's the beauty. I mean, I love the, you know, if the, the verse in Matthew says, seek first the kingdom of God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Like, the desires of your heart, by that point, have been changed to align with, yeah. with God's, right? Yeah. Why would someone disagree with this? Well, maybe they're not always in opposition to each other. Yeah, Paula? I think I, I agree with the first sentence. I agree with the second sentence. I'm not completely... I don't want to make it to the third one. It doesn't mean that the two need to be in opposition. They can also complement each other. The body cannot live without the mind. It's like the, mm. the, the spiritual self cannot do spiritual action without the body. The body can also not continue to do things without the spiritual self. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to reflect? I, I know I'm sitting on your grace side, but... I think where I struggle with this is it seems to center sin with our body. Yeah, that's and true. I, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of sins that involve our, our body, but I don't really see sin as something um, strictly carnal. I, I think yeah. it, it is it is spiritual in the sense of making myself God, which yeah. is a spiritual act, not yeah. um, sort of a, I need to or I care about myself. So yeah. I think I actually think I disagree more. Okay. Which is I, funny because you're not operating with the It's just incomplete. Like it's not that I disagree with this, but it's I think we, it doesn't really address yeah. sin fully. Well and to be fair, this was my summary. And I think it's really interesting to, to kind of reference um, the other explanation of how we all got here, Darwin's theory of evolution that we just evolved, because if that was the case, then it should be purely carnal and just about survival of the fittest, right? Um, C.S. Lewis does give it a lot more of a, I mean, he does a, he gives a more complete definition. It's something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired. Um, Zan, going back to your example of being in the society pages, uh, to take advantage of other lives, to exploit the whole universe, to be left to itself to keep away from anything stronger or higher than it. So that is a more complete definition. Yeah, Valerie. And like for me, I can balance the last sentence with survival. Okay, I have to work to make a living, but um, the moral divine part is I'm not just there for a paycheck. I need to be dedicated to my job, do the best job I can. There's mm. times I want to have a nasty attitude with my yeah. self-centeredness, but I need God's help to be kind to these yeah. people listen to their complaints and try and encourage them. So yeah. it can be functioning together, but there's times when there's a lot of Yeah, yeah. I mean, it says be responsible, work for it, you know, so I'm doing this, right. but my attitude's doing it. Yeah, yeah, I think most of us run into these this conflict all day long. You know, I mean, I experience it when I want to, when I want to put my feet up and lay down, but there's, my kids need me to do something for them. Um, attitude is huge. I think we run into like a bad attitude all the time. Kate. And the other thing I, I was thinking about with this is that if you take imitations of Christ to its sort of extremely natural conclusion, yeah. being dead is kind of, I mean, that is the end point. Yeah. But being dead isn't really necessarily serving anyone Feed our bodies and help help us survive. Yeah, but I think it's um, 
you know, going back to the Forky illustration, that this little creature believed that he belonged in the trash. He wanted to be left alone to throw himself away. And Woody was saying, you have a new identity now. You have to live into something more, okay? Those two sides of him were warring. But the more he believed in the truth about his identity, the more he was able to actually live into that identity. Less comfort from Sunny and then we'll go on. Yeah, and, and I also think you have to... Um, you have to take care of yourself before you yeah. can be of service to others because yeah. if you deplete yourself emotionally, mentally, physically, yeah. then you're not good for anyone. That's, so yeah. you've got to, in a way, you have to you have to put yourself first, kind of, to be there yeah. for others. And I think, I think this is a great point. I think in this chapter, he's still really talking about ideas. We're not talking about practical behavior. Right? Like, of course we need to feed ourselves and keep ourselves clean and keep ourselves safe and all the rest. He's really talking more about the desires and motivations within us. Okay. Um, okay, let's, um, I, that's more theological. Um, and what, we don't have a ton of time left. So I want, there was one, oh. Uh, this is the one. Let's get into this one. I really want to hear people's thoughts on this one, okay? Because it's related to sort of what we talked about as well. So this is statement seven. It is nearly impossible to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, the American dream. I mean, I think that this is kind of what we're told to live for. It's nearly impossible to keep that happiness as your great aim in life and at the same time be good. What do you think about this? Do you disagree or do you agree? Well, you could be... You could be happy by doing good, that mm -hmm. could make you happy. I mean, if you're, like, if that gives you personal happiness mm -hmm. by being good, then it but goes together. Remember Margaret, during the sermon, she was saying that she used to serve a ladle because it, it made her feel good, but she recognized that that was actually an incomplete motivation for her service and that there was deeper healing, um, deeper work that God needed to do, right? This is wonderful. I love that we're split on this. This is hopefully going to be a good discussion. Valerie. Well, something that might make me happy, I think, may not be morally according to God's will. Mm -hmm. So I would not be morally good yeah. if I did what seemed really pleasing. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't even hurt my body overdoing, yeah. but I like this. Right. So. Yeah. My girls, all this, they're like, why can't we just have candy all the time? <laughs> right? Okay? Like, well, it, it would actually hurt you. Yeah. Why else? Why would someone agree or disagree? Tom? Well, we, I think in our society, we think of happiness in short term. And, uh, yeah. And thinking of happiness in the longer term. And moral maturity is required. Yeah. The sense that you are going to be aiming for an overall happiness in a long term connection and particularly having a long-term connection to God yeah. and brings more happiness than the short-term senses of what happiness might be. Yeah, I, I, I really agree with that. I think that's when I was talking to God about my desire to be married, um, I think if I had put all, if God hadn't healed me on a much deeper level and, and showed me that he was the answer to my fears, not any kind of good guy, okay, um, my, my desire would have been, the marriage would have been ruined before it had started. I would have put so much pressure on my partner to be God, to be everything for me, instead of letting, giving that desire totally to God and being like, I know that I need you to be enough first. And then God ultimately brought me into something that, that Jeff, my marriage to Jeff makes me very, very happy. I'm so thankful. But um, for me, I had, I had to know that God was enough before that season, before I was ready to enter into that season. Sarah? I think the key to this um, is that it, you can only keep your happiness as an aim in life and be good if you are willing to let your desires be transformed. Yeah. And I don't think anybody can have their desires completely transformed all the time. Yeah. So it's complicated, <laughs> but I do think by saying, let your will be done, God, like, I want to do what you want. Yeah. There's so much happiness in that. And yeah. that doesn't mean a happiness in the sense of our society with fame and, yeah. you know, money and all that. But that, that true contentment yeah. 
comes from doing God's will in your life. Yeah. And yeah. That yeah. I like the verse that I think it opens James, where it says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of, of many kinds. And I heard a sermon once on it that's, that's count is such a deliberate word. It's an accounting word. Write it down. It's joy. It may not feel good, but there, there is something that is deep and powerful and important that is happening here when you're going through trials. Count it as all joy. So there is, there's a happiness that comes, um, which, is, which is more, more lasting and more true, I think, than the kind of earthly happiness that we really feel like we would like. Um, Kate and then Valerie. You know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, this aim of happiness. Yeah. It's, it's really actually never wishful because whatever, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want to get, it's not you really want it and then to have people, that's, that's not really making you happy like children. So, yeah. I mean, I think you do, that would be taking those steps farther down yeah. in the wrong direction, yeah. chasing that. Yeah. 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 That's very true. Yeah, Valerie, what were you gonna say? When it says counted on joy in the trial, you know, the trial is not joyful, it's very painful. Oh, absolutely. But the joy is that the Lord has not left me yeah. and he's here and he will help me. That's where my joy yeah. is I like start thanking God that he's gonna help me in this terrible thing. Yeah, I listened to a podcast this last week about a woman who was going through stage four cancer and was reflecting on the fact that suffering, like Christians say a lot of bad things when we go through suffering. We have a lot of really trite phrases that we want to bust out. And, and she was saying, like, you know, what do you do when prayer isn't working the way that you want it to work, when it's not leading to the outcome that you want? She says, well, for me, prayer is a lifeline. Like, it's, it, is, it is the, you know, I was thinking about if God as a father just, like, plopped us down on the earth and was like, okay, cool, have a good life, and then left, and then came back at the end, and he was like, all right, let's look at the broad picture of your life. Were you good or were you bad? Okay, you were good, all right, you can go to heaven. That, that's a terrible parent, right? But, 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 but a good parent is with us in those awful moments, in those sad, hard, hard moments. The parent is there to comfort us and to help us through it. And so I love that, that God is with us. And that is, that's the source of hope. Uh, Bela, what were you going to say? Uh, I was thinking about the comment about um, actually the word that I would apply is our aspirations, our hopes mm-hmm. are insatiable. Mm. They just keep growing. If you achieve something, you need more. Yeah. 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 Are, yeah, we always want more and more and more. How are we truly satisfied? Bogar? We read in the gospel that seek you first the kingdom of heaven, and then all the other things will be added to you. Yeah. But when we seek those additions first, yeah. we really don't find true, true happiness. Yeah. What was that, Pauline? Yeah. yeah. I heard some. I heard one time that God really doesn't want you to be happy but holy. Mm, yeah. Yeah, but I also see that God, God loves giving good gifts to His children too. Yeah. You know, I think again about like the feast imagery. If my girls were to invite me to a tea party, they would, um, you know, they'd be, they'd find their little cups, they'd fill them with leaves and maybe some flowers. They do a really cute job at putting together a terrible meal. <laughs> um, but I took Ramona to a tea party yesterday that one of her mom's friends had invited her to. And, you know, she'd set up this shade tent. There was a centerpiece. There was a beautiful tea set. There were cakes and cupcakes and sandwiches and goblets with water. You know, it was just beautiful. There were pillows on the ground, right? He wants to invite us to a feast. It's going to be so much better if we show up to his feast than if we try to get him to, to come and to our little tea party, right, with the mud and the water. He, we, we can't even begin to imagine what he is calling us to, what he wants for us, the kind of abundant life that he invites us into. But it means we give him everything. That's what he calls us to. Tom, let's come and well, 
the marriage uh, at Cana, he was invited and uh, what did he bring? The best one. He brought the best one. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's pray. Um, Lord God, it is hard and scary to allow you to transform our tin selves into fully alive children that belong to you. Lord, would you help us to remember that you are a good father and that you love us and that what you, that what, when we give you our whole lives, you, you transform us into who we were fully meant to be and you bring us into abundant life both eternally and in this life. Lord, it is, it is a hard thing to trust you that much, but I pray that you would build in us the kind of trust and love that causes us to walk in your ways and to evermore become like you. Thank you for your love and for your patience. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming, you guys. we got one more week, and then we're all done.